Abundance of love Abundance of grace Down to that cross You took my place Oh God You take my ransom Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Have your Bible turned to Psalm chapter 51. A very familiar passage of Scripture for many. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. These verses will be on the screens in front of you. In Psalm 51, verse 17, the Bible says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh, God, I want to preach to you this morning from a sermon titled, God Uses Broken Things. Look at somebody and say, broken things. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for each person that's come here. And I ask you now by your spirit, God, to anoint me to say the things that would honor you. God, I pray that you would sit down upon us in this service today and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday. All over the world today, Christians of various denominations celebrate this event, Palm Sunday, in their own specific traditions. Now, many of you that have been around have heard me say for years, Easter's a huge day, but my favorite sermon to preach of all sermons every year is Palm Sunday. Sunday. It is just an exciting story to me. It signals Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. It starts the beginning of what many call the week of the passion or holy week, the last week in the earthly ministry and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, where ultimately on Good Friday, he's crucified and dies. And then on Easter Sunday morning, he's resurrected from the dead. Anybody glad that he died, was buried, and rose again? That's the whole Christian message right there. But today I want to preach to you uh, about some things, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table. But this idea of brokenness is, com- is replete throughout the entire Scripture. You see God breaking things, Him blessing them, and using them. And I want you to know that is a process that everyone goes through, being broken, being blessed, and being used by God. Uh, The great preacher Vance Havner said, God uses broken things. I'm glad he agrees with the title of my message. We don't have that quote on the screen. God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, Broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It's Peter weeping bitterly who returns to greater power than ever. And I want to ask you this. Don't answer out loud, but just think in your own mind. Have you ever felt broken? Has there ever been anything in your life that caused you to feel broken? broken. And I'm talking about on all five different levels. I've told you for years that as believers, we exist 
uh, we move and we live on five different levels, spiritual, physical, emotional, relational, and financial. And I'm going to tell you, I, I've, I've been broken spiritually in my life. I've been broken physically. I've been broken emotionally, relationally, and financially. And so I'm not telling you what I heard this morning. I'm telling you what I know. And some of you have been around long enough, you understand that as, uh, Jesus' promises are always true. And the scripture says, as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to have trouble. And there's this principle of brokenness. And, uh, but here's great news in Psalm 34:18, the psalmist said, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. I want you to know if you've ever been brokenhearted, God's drawing close to you. If you've ever felt like you were being crushed, God is your rescuer. Uh, Smith Wigglesworth said this before God could bring me to this place, He has broken me a thousand times. Now, don't take the fact that I quote, somebody always does this. I put a quote up on a screen that I like. Somebody will Google the worst information they can find on somebody, and you say, do you agree with that? I agree with what I put on the screen. I don't agree with anybody 100% on, on their theology, and I don't expect anybody to agree with me 100% on mine. Can we agree with this, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and he rose so we could have life? Amen. But there is this brokenness, and, and, and Smith Wigglesworth said uh, of being in a place where God was using him in a great way that he, has, he had to break him. Now, this might cause you to think, well, if that's the reality, I don't want Christianity. I, I don't want a religion where I have to get broken, and then I have to get blessed, and then I have to get used. Uh, I always defer to Elder Keon when it comes to matters of physical fitness, uh, I don't have to explain that if you've ever looked at me and looked at him. But he knows a lot. He's, he's, that, that's not only his personal um, lifestyle, that's his professional lifestyle. He's very knowledgeable uh, about the body and physical fitness and things of that nature. But you could take it from me. You could take it from Elder Keon. Uh, you could look it up for yourself. Uh, Elder, don't, don't muscles have to be broken down to be built back up to get stronger and bigger? It is, it, it, in the physical realm. And Jesus taught in the physical realm. Jesus taught first natural, then spiritual. He taught people. He talked to fishermen about fishing terms to teach them spiritual truths. He talked to farmers in agricultural terms to teach them spiritual truths. Even in the natural, uh, I think about all of us who've served in the military before. Their whole goal when they get you there is to break you down. Sergeant Major saying yes already. He spent 30 years in that process, and they, they want to break you down. If you ever had a great coach in your life, if you ever played Pop Warner football, if you ever played Little League baseball, they want to break you down so that you can grow back stronger in the right way. And after David's sin with Bathsheba, God inspires him to write Psalm 51. And that was our opening verse today. It's, it's called a penitential psalm. And penitential psalms are psalms where the writer is sorrowful over their sin and they realize that it's their sins that have contributed to the problem that they are currently having. And you come to God, you repent, you ask God to forgive you and to take away those issues. And, and it caused me to, to, to think about this question. Have you ever, you personally, have you ever considered that your sins, your issues, your actions, thoughts, and deeds could be contributing to the difficulties you're going through right now? 
Oh, see, only wise people think like that. And that's why the Bible says if you correct a foolish person, they'll hate you. But if you correct a wise person, they'll, grow, they'll love you and grow yet wiser. So our opening verse, Psalm 51, 17, I'll read it again for you. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. Now, David has been close to God. He got away. He's repenting, coming back. That's, that's not only the life of David. That's the life of us. The Bible says a righteous person falls six times, gets up uh, even seven times. But the fall, one, a one-time fall is enough to keep the unrighteous down forever. Listen, the hallmark of your real salvation is not that you're perfect because only Jesus is perfect. Amen. Only Jesus is perfect. The telltale sign of your true salvation is you keep getting back up. You keep repenting. You keep going back to God. This is the life that David lived. This is the life of the believer. And he's coming back to God in Psalm 51 after a horrible downfall in his own life. And he wants to please God. Have you ever wanted to please God? I hope that's in your heart. And if, you're, if that's ever been in your heart, you need to remember what the Scripture says in this verse, that what God is looking for is a broken spirit. Not that he wants to crush you, not that God wants to destroy your spirit, but here's the reality. When you grieve someone you love, it ought to do something to you emotionally on the inside. It ought to do something to your heart. And David comes to God in his great psalm of Repentance, And I want you to know thousands of years later, God still is pleased with a broken and a repentant heart. I don't know how you've been living, but I do love this. And I got to share this with somebody this week. Uh, no matter where you are in life, every, every human being on this planet, I believe, is only one prayer away from being perfectly right with God. Because God said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So no matter where you are, what you're going through, if you've been brokenhearted before, you're brokenhearted now, you're going to be brokenhearted in the future, hold on to this verse, put it in your mind, write it down. Psalm 147.3 says, he heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Now, I don't know how much time you spent around nurses. And we have some nurses in the room. I don't know how much time you spent in hospitals. But when my wife got sick with cancer and she was dying, it was almost a two-year battle. And we spent over 180 nights in different hospitals during that uh, two years. And I can tell you, having the right nurse made a difference. There were some nurses that hated their job, and they were just mean. And then there were other nurses, and, and, and especially, what, what, what are they? They're not called techs anymore. What are they called? Um, CNAs. Uh, CNAs made a big difference. Attitude, who they were. Gail ended up with, she had her, her favorite CNA was a lady named Patricia. And Patricia was going to school to be a nurse, and she was a CNA. And uh, she was really a lot older than all the other CNAs. She was, she was in her 40s. And, uh, but she was so kind and she was so sweet. And I always felt better when I knew that it was Patricia's eight hours to take care of my wife because it matters who bandages your wounds. It matters who's taking care of you. And I'm going to tell you this. If, if you've ever been brokenhearted, I want you to rejoice and know God himself 
is the one to piece you back together. God himself is the one to heal you and bandage your wounds. Now, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. My mom's in the room. Uh, She'll she, she tell you the truth because she's an extremely honest human being. When Dean and I would get hurt growing up, and, and I've asked nurses this my whole life based on my own experience, if, if it's true with them. And, Mom, they all say it is. Um, nurses that have been nurses for a while, especially my mom. My mom was a supervisor over the emergency room, the medical intensive care unit, and the surgical intensive care unit at one point in her career. And so she saw a lot every day. It was emergency room, ICU, uh, all, all this different stuff. If Dean and I came in the house, we could be bleeding down our leg. Mommy, get out of here with that. I saw a man lose both legs, and, and then it was a story like that, and it was just, you know, rub some dirt on it, spit on it. You're not dying. Um, just go on about your business. And that's really where seasoned nurses get to in their lifetime. But I, I want to tell you this. I don't care if your mommy was a Oh, baby, got a hangnail. Uh, let me hold you for three hours. Or like my mom, get out of my house and, and, take, and don't get any blood on my carpet. Uh, you know, rub it off in the grass. But wherever you were on that, I've got good news for you today. God, if he is your heavenly father, he wants to bandage you up. He wants to heal you. He wants to fix you. He wants to put his hands on you and make you better. I told you God uses broken things. I'm not going to belabor the point because I want us to get into the Lord's Supper. But uh, I wrote down some things on this, on this brokenness concept. It was in Judges chapter 7 when Gideon and his army used broken pitchers uh, to create a great victory. They had to break them so the light could shine out of them and send terror into the enemy. In Mark chapter 14, many of you know one of my favorite stories and, and probably my favorite uh, one of my top five all-time favorite songs uh, by C.C. Winans is Alabaster Box. And in, Ma- in Mark chapter 14, it was a broken alabaster box that caused a fragrance to be spilled out. In Matthew 14, uh, it was broken bread. Jesus took and he broke the bread and he broke the fishes and he divided them. And everybody, some people talk about it being 5,000 people in this particular passage. Well, it literally says... 5,000 men plus the women and the children. Now, let me ask you this. If there's 5,000 men at at a church service, don't you know there's more than 5,000 women? Come on now. Look at who showed up at the cross for Jesus. All the big, strong men ran away. It It was John... Who, who really loved Jesus, and it was a whole bunch of women at the foot of the cross loving. Hey, I promise you, if there were 5,000 men uh, that Jesus fed that day, there were more women than men. And then you throw the children in there. Listen, feeding 5,000 people with a couple fish and a couple pieces of bread, that's miraculous in and of itself. But I'm going to tell you, it was at least 12, 15, maybe 20,000 people. But what's the principle? He took something, he broke it, he blessed it. And he used it for his glory. In Psalm 51, where we are today, it's a broken spirit that God uses to draw us closer to him. And we'll be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in just a moment. And we'll see that it was the broken body of Christ by which the world was saved. So this morning, we're going to, you see the little uh, 
uh, things out here, the trays out here, you know we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And this is at, at the, uh, near the end of this Holy Week that we're entering into. Now on Thursday night, Jesus sat down with his disciples. And the Lord's disciples were Jews, so they understood the significance of what was going on beyond what most Christians think about today. Because it was the Passover meal, and in the midst of the hustle and the bustle, they're like, hey, yo, where are we eating the Passover meal? They can say it like that, uh, but you get the point. And Jesus teaches them, uh, they know about the Passover. Now, if you don't know what Passover means, Passover is when God promised uh, when Pharaoh was refusing to let God's people go, and God started bringing plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh, and he, he made, a, made a staff become a snake, and he turned water into blood, brought lice uh, uh, or locusts. He brought frogs, and ultimately the tenth and final plague he brought was he sent the death angel into the earth to go house by house and kill every firstborn uh, child in the home, firstborn son in the home. And so what God told his people is if you'll take an, a lamb and you'll sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and smear it across the doorpost and on both sides of the door, the death angel will do what? Pass over you and not bring harm to your household. Now, you might think, well, I just don't believe that uh, a God would, would, uh, would do something like that. Listen, God does what he said he does. And, and what we know about God, we develop, we, we've learned from this book, and this is the story of Passover. And they understood that the meal was a celebration of God's deliverance. And the Hebrew word for deliverance is, 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 comes from the same root word that the word for salvation comes for. So the Passover meal is a celebration of being saved from the future impending death. And so it's about celebration. And as Jesus sits down and has this last meal with them, and he told them, I've desired to have this meal with you, and I, I won't celebrate it with you again until I come back in my kingdom. And so they had their own idea about how to take the Passover meal. And Jesus takes charge, and he tells them some new truth, some deeper truth about the Passover meal. And that's where we get the Lord's Supper. But in Mark 14, 12, listen to what the Bible says. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? Now, that's not quite, hey, yo, where are we eating Passover meal at? But they said, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? And in verse 13, Jesus said, Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Now, everybody had to go to the well to get water to take back to their house. If I told you, uh, go up to the Publix on 103rd Street, and you you see a man pushing a shopping cart, uh, he'll hook you up. Anybody think there need to be a little more instruction than a man pushing a shopping cart? He said, as you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Now, how in the world are they supposed to find this dude? Let me tell you. 
if, if you read it and gloss over it, it might not jump out to you. This is miraculous in and of itself. Because here, men didn't carry water. Men didn't go get the water from the well. There was no men carrying water. Jesus told them to do something that's like, you see, you see who, what? And they they could have went into a whole dialogue, but by this time they had learned some things. Because they could have said, how are we going to find a man carrying water? What kind of man's carrying water in the city in front of everybody? It, no man's carried water in that city since, since, since the flood. But Jesus told him to do it, and he did it. I want you to know, no matter how unusual the request or the command of the Lord, no matter how off it might sound to you, whatever God tells you to do, you need to do it. And this, this was an unusual request, but they obeyed, and they got right into it. In verse 14, he said, At the house he enters, say to the owner, The teacher asks, Where's the guest room? Where can I eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will, take you to a up, he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they pe- prepared the Passover meal there. I don't have time to preach this, but there's so much to unpack here. I want you to understand, when Jesus tells you to do something and you go and do it, you will, hear me good, find everything. Just as Jesus said. It will always be just as Jesus said because he never lies. So that's the Passover meal. That's the backdrop. That's the setting. Now, here's the reality. There's several different views about communion. Different people celebrate communion in different ways. And hear this. Different people have different theologies about communion. Just like different people have different theologies about how we should worship and baptism and things of that nature. But I wanted to give you a couple of the major views today so you can kind of understand the significant biblical um, experience of the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation. And transubstantiation is where the priest says some words, uh, does some stuff, uh, and uh, transforms the bread and the fruit into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Now, I was born into the Catholic Church, raised in the Catholic Church, and uh, I, was, I was telling Dina this week uh, about preparing um, for the Lord's table, and I told her I got so much Catholic holdover in me that when we first started the church here, um, anytime we would have communion, I would do what the priest did. Do you think when in a Catholic church, or any high liturgy church, that if there's leftover wine in the cup, you think they just toss that out into the grass? No. No, because in their belief system, that's the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so every communion service, I would go and sit in my office, and I would drink every cup that was left over because the priest always drank all the... And then I realized, but we're not Catholic. I'm like, but Catholics do a lot of things right. Uh, I don't agree with everything they do, but uh, they, they, I mean, they, they, we, we owe all the history that we have of the church, of the Catholic church. I just don't agree with transubstantiation. This, I don't know, Publix Juice, Winn-Dixie Food Line, uh, Dollar General, huh? Yeah, but I mean, it was bought at a store. This is Welch's Juice, um, and, and, and it's not going to turn into the blood of Jesus Christ. 
I don't have any magic dust to make it turn into the blood of Jesus Christ. It's representative of the blood of Jesus Christ. I, listen, here's the cool thing about abundant life, and I tell you this all the time. There's room for difference at abundant life. You don't have to agree with me about transubstantiation. I don't believe in it. If you want to, study it out. Make a case for it. Um, all we have to do is believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But So that's, that's the traditional Roman Catholic view. In, inside other Christian denominations, there's three, three main views. Number one is the memorial view. And this is the view that says the Lord's Supper is only a memorial. It, it, it's just a ceremony and nothing more. Um, that's the view held by the largest percentage of Christian denominations. And I think it's abominable. I think it's horrific. I think it's blasphemous. I think it's heresy. I think it's vile and disgusting. I think it's an embarrassment to someone's love for God to say, oh, it's just a ceremony that we do to, to no, it's, it's more than that. Can somebody say more? more? I hope you understand that the memorial view uh, is, is in the same spot as the transubstantiation view. And then there's a, a view commonly called the Lutheran view. And, and Lutheran... Uh, he, he, had, he had a view that became called consubstantiation. He hated that term, if you study what his thoughts about consubstantiation, but it taught that the body and the blood of Christ are in heaven. And this is why Luther said, you can't make Jesus come down out of heaven and get inside this cup. That, 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 that's, not, that's not how it works. And so Luther taught that although the, the body and the blood of Christ in heaven, um, that they're also physically in heaven with and under the elements of the Lord's Supper. I like Martin Luther. I thank God for what he used Martin Luther for in the Reformation, but I, I, I have no belief system in consubstantiation. And then there is the Reformed view um, that John Calvin popularized in his ministry, and he, he taught about dynamic presence or spiritual presence. He he taught that the Bible shows that Christ's physical body is in heaven, and therefore the bread and the cup cannot become that, yet his spirit is here and can be throughout the world at once. And here it is. And the force of the scriptures drew Calvin to surmise that the sacrament is a memorial, but much more. It is ceremonial, but much more. And I, 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 put, this, I put this quote in my notes. I, I want you to hear exactly what he said, it is a mystery, talking about the Lord's Supper, it is a mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout, which is by nature incomprehensible. If anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, how does it become the body and the blood, how does all this work, what, uh, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, what, what, how does all this make sense? He said, if anybody asks me how this communion takes place, I am not ashamed to confess that that is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I'd rather experience it than understand it. How does Jesus get inside of the Lord's Supper? How does all that work? I'm telling you now, I personally... I believe in spiritual presence. The Bible says when we gather together in his name, he's here in our midst. The Bible also says he's in all places at all times. Now, if you've been following God long enough, you know you've been in some places sometimes where you really felt the presence of God. And you're like, well, God is in this place for sure. 
Um, that's the tangible. He's everywhere, but there's a tangible presence of God. There's a closeness of God. There's, there's a place where God really sits in with you. And I believe that that is found in no greater place than the Lord's Supper. And we're going to experience that today for those who are willing. Now, I told you that God uses broken things. This morning, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper where Jesus took bread. He broke it. And then he used it for God's glory. Now, you don't have to be a member of our church. Uh, our church has what is officially known as open communion, which means you don't have to be a member here. You don't have to agree with me about everything. If, if you are a born-again believer and you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe that he uh, suffered, died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, we invite you to receive communion with us today but before we go to the lord's table we're going to switch it up a little bit i want the ushers to go ahead shocking i hope that some ushers are here some of them drift in late we're going to go ahead and take an offering this morning before we go to the lord's table so we don't do that at the end so come on ushers get ready for me now and let's get ready to receive the bible says on the first day of the week you should take the tithe which means one tenth to the house of the lord that there always be enough resources in god's house to keep feeding people and keep clothing people. And I've heard people say, oh, the tithe is it's Old Testament, Pastor Scott. It's not taught in the New Testament. You ought to get into Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus said that you must tithe. Um, but here's the reality. You can do what you want to do with your money. God promised if you give to him, he'll give to you. The greatest investment you'll ever make is in putting your money together with what God is doing and let God bless you for it. Pray with me. God, thank you for giving to us. Lord, I thank you for all the ways you've blessed us. And I ask you now, God, that you'd give people faith to trust you, even with their finances. God, I know for some people it's hard to trust you financially. God, but we believe in you. And I ask God today to strengthen our faith, to raise up giving people in this church. Help us to always have enough that we can continue to bless this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Give with a smile on your face. And there was going to be a song playing right now. The sound man just went. I don't speak, but I think I know what he meant. wrote a song about it. Want to hear it? Who said that? You remember, Dina? It was hilarious. Y'all wouldn't have got it. Anyway, and, and, and did all y'all enjoy that song I handpicked out, sent to the sound booth to play for the, for the offering? Wasn't that fantastic? Come on, put your hands together for God and bad technology. All right, y'all go ahead and let that song go and try to to keep moving in this place. All right, so the Lord has given his church two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, then you can be baptized. And I hope that you've experienced scriptural baptism. I've had more water put on me in the name of Jesus uh, than than most people will. I was christened into the Catholic Church the first week I was alive. I was baptized multiple times 
inside of Christian churches, and you might be thinking, well, Pastor, how many times you got to get baptized? Same number of times you got to get saved. One time for real. The problem is I had a, a several emotional decisions. I had several uh, trying to get fire insurance decisions, try, try, several uh, please, God, get me out of this jam and I'll love you forever uh, fake decisions. But the Bible says you'll only find God when you search for him with your whole heart. And so I, I, when, I, when I finally got saved for real on July 15, 1981, I went to the pastor of Hillcrest Baptist Church on the corner of Plymouth and LaBelle off Cassett Avenue, and, and I uh, told him, got saved, and he's like, okay, we well, need to get baptized. I said, no, I already did that. Matter of fact, I've done that several times. He's like, well, when did you get saved? I said, this is past Wednesday night. He said, well, did you get baptized between the past Wednesday night and today? I said, no, sir. He said, well, you need to get your baptism, and I love the way he said it, and I've been telling people for 40 years, get your baptism on the proper side of your salvation. You, you, you believe, and then you are baptized. So that's the first ordinance, and in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, God said, if you're truly saved, to take the Lord's Supper to remember him by. And I want us to remember the Lord's suffering and his victory for us. And the Bible... Well, this is one of the wildest verses in all the Bible to me. In Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, who created the world? Who uh, inspired this book to be written? Who owns everything? So who gets to decide the rules? Yeah, he does, and we just have to accept it, deal with it, live inside his rule system because we're living in his universe, and he's providing all the oxygen for it, and he came up with this plan. When human beings do wrong, somebody's got to shed some blood for it. Whenever there is sin, there cannot be forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And I, every time I think about that, I'm like, I'd had a different plan. Me personally, I just killed them all and started over. But then it just ended up with the same thing. Or I'd have tried, tried to find some people to start over with that, that looked like they could make, make, make a go of it, but it ended up the same thing. I certainly would not have told people, okay, because you've done evil, I'm going to let my firstborn child suffer, bleed, be humiliated, stripped naked, beaten unrecognizable, die for you on a cross, raise himself from the dead. All you have to do is believe in that and, 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 and uh, trust the Lord with all your heart. And you, listen, I wouldn't have my son dying for y'all. And you wouldn't have yours dying for me. But that's God's way. From the very beginning, remember Adam and Eve were perfect in the garden, Butt naked, right with God, good-looking man, good-looking woman. You got to believe that because, you know, that, that, was, that was before Dr. Pepper and Doritos. <laughs> that was before Skittles and, 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 and circus peanuts. Um, but when they sinned, there had to be shedding of blood. And people said, well, where's the shedding of blood? You see what happened after they sinned and they realized they were naked. God clothed them with the skins of animals. Let me tell you something about skinning an animal. You don't skin an animal without, without getting some blood somewhere. You kill an animal and skin it, but especially in those days. I, I know one of y'all thinking, mm, I could snare a squirrel. And I got our scalpel. I cleaning. Listen, they didn't have those kind of techniques back then. Um, it was more brutal. And God said there has to be shedding of blood. So from 
Adam and Eve all the way through the Old Testament period where they would just slay thousands of animals um, uh, at the temple. It was a bloody, bloody time. And some people don't like to talk about the blood of the cross. They don't like to think about um, the, the violence and the, the pain of the cross. But I'll say what every great preacher has ever said in the history of my lifetime. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a bloody gospel. And I thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ because it's only by his blood that we have forgiveness of sins. So God said there had to be a sacrifice. And I want to give you a little backstory about the sacrifice that Christians believe in and that this book teaches. In Luke 23, 32, the Bible says two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but if you've ever seen some places in the country still do this, they have a field out in front of the church, beside the church, behind the church, and have how many crosses in it? Three crosses. And that represents uh, Jesus wasn't on all three crosses, so that represents the fact of this scripture that there was criminals crucified, one on his right and one on his left. I don't know if I've ever even talked to Seth about this. My youngest son's in the room, and we travel a lot, and we go to hotels, and we like hot water. Anybody ever use hot water in a shower at a hotel room? What's that mirror look like when you get done? It's just fogged up, fogged up all the way. For my whole adult life, every hotel mirror, do you even know what I've done to every hotel mirror? I don't think I've ever told you. Yeah, I, I write Jesus is Lord on the mirror, and I put three crosses ne- next to it. I, I don't know who's been in that room. <laughs> That's a different message for a different time. But I will tell you this. Scriptures are caught, but spirits, scriptures are taught, but spirits are caught. I'm going to keep writing Jesus is Lord and drawing my crosses. You do what you want to do when you're sleeping in some strange room. But the three crosses come from the truth of the historical life of Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Every human being that has ever lived believes in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. Everybody just doesn't believe that he was God come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cruel Roman cross, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. That's what takes you from being lost to being saved. But everybody believes that Jesus was a historical figure. He's the most documented human being in the history of the human experience And our very calendar, it's 2023 based on the birth of Jesus Christ. So everybody believes in Jesus. Everybody just doesn't believe uh, that he rose from the dead. In verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Anybody want to know why the, the soldiers had clothes to gamble over? Because they stripped him naked, and they beat him so violently. The Bible tells us that uh, he was unrecognizable as a man, and they gambled for his clothes. There was so much at the cross. There was humiliation. There was pain. There was suffering. There was bloodshed. There was separation from God and his son when Jesus took on the sin of the world, and the whole earth went 
dark. In verse 35, the Bible says, The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. Every time I've read that verse, since I got saved, I have thought, I wish he would have. I wish he would have. Then I realized that if he, if he would have pulled himself off the cross, if he really would have proven himself and not died for our sins, we'd all be lost and undone. But there's just a part of me that I'm just weird. Like There's a part of me that says I'd rather pay for my own sin than have the perfect sacrificial lamb of God be mocked and humiliated by people thinking that he's not all that he really is. And I want you to know this morning that he's more than you ever thought he was. He's better than you can imagine, and he's greater than you can conceive. And he is God's Messiah. He is the chosen one. In verse 36, the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fashioned above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. They would, they would write above their, uh, the, the, on the cross, they would write the sin that they, or the crime that they had committed, and the crime that they had accused Jesus of was saying that he was the king of the Jews and... The Romans said there's no king but Caesar, so they, they used that to try to get Jesus arrested and crucified. In verse 39, the Bible says, One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Now, in case you never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, in case you never read a book about personal development, in case you never read a book about leadership, in case you never read a book about personal management, this is not the way that you talk to people when you're in a jam. This is not the way you talk to someone you want to help you out in a jam. My uh, oldest son was home for a couple of weeks this month, and we were out on St. John's River uh, Doctors Lake and Black Creek on uh, our, our jet ski, and I got stopped by the water cop. Stopped by the water cop. They want to make sure my registration's all intact. They want to make sure that, you know, who's out there on the water. And he said, why don't you have decals on both sides of your jet ski? I said... It's the only one they gave me. I didn't. He said, I'm telling. And then I'm like, okay, we better. I, I got to go softer on this guy because he's thinking I'm con being confrontational. And being confrontational with police is a losing situation. I've been face down on the floor. I've been handcuffed and put in the back of a cop car. And, and, and so I, I told him, you know, just got this registration, just renewed the tag. And that's what they gave me. I put it on this side. My son's back from the Marines. Oh, you're a Marine. He's, he's former military. And uh, so. Uh, I, I got Marine Corps privilege warning ticket. Now, if I'd have looked at that cop and I'd have said, you ain't even a real cop. Hey, if you're a real cop, why don't you prove it? Why don't you shoot somebody? I don't think it would have went that well for me. I don't think I'd have got Marine Corps privilege. I don't think I'd have got a warning ticket. We drove off and Jake's like, man, that guy was a jerk. I'm like, are you high? A jerk. He said, yeah, he was 
condescending to you, talking down to you. I'm like, son, I got no ego when it comes to police because the man's got a gun on his hip, a radio. He could put me in jail. And he could have wrote me a ticket for $300 today, and he did it. That man is awesome. Jake's like, I still think he's a jerk. <laughs> yeah, you ain't never paid a ticket for yourself. Uh, you don't talk to people that you're trying to get help from. Like, prove it to us. Save yourself and save us too while you're at it. Verse 40 says, but the other criminal protested. Don't you even fear? Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done Nothing wrong. Now, he couldn't say that about Jesus if he didn't know about Jesus. He couldn't declare that. No one ever believed there was a perfect human being until the followers of Jesus Christ witnessed the life of Christ. This man, although a criminal, this man, although being put to death for his crimes, knew, realized who Jesus was, confessed who Jesus was, in verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, here's how we know theologically that this man just got born again and is in heaven now because he couldn't have believed that anything, if he didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, if he didn't think Jesus was going to raise himself from the dead, why are you telling somebody that's hanging next to you dying, hey, remember me when you come back? People must have been looking around thinking, well, they think they're going to have a party. when this, it does, this don't end in a party. This ends in y'all dying. But he knew who Jesus was, and he asked Jesus to remember him. And in verse 43, Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I don't want to have to die on a cross to get to heaven, but I can tell you this, that was the best news that man had ever heard. That was a right now revelation. That was fresh manna for that man who, who was struggling with his last breaths, placing faith in Christ, having the assurance that Jesus was going to save him. In verse 44, the Bible says, By this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Now, this noon to 3 o'clock is the three hours of the all pro prophecies being fulfilled regarding salvation. And the Bible said that darkness fell across the whole land for three hours. And if you go back historically, there are astrologists who, who talk about massive eclipses during this time. They're, they're, this is a historical record. Theologians teach that the reason the sun went dark, the reason the whole planet went dark, is because the first time in human history... Uh, the father and the son were separated from each other because it was between 12 and 3 o'clock when this transference that the Bible teaches about happened. The Bible says he took our sins and gave us his righteousness. The Bible says our sin, he bore our sins on his own body, and we know that God is too holy to look upon sin because he told us that. And so he looked away from Jesus, and that's when Jesus cried out. And I believe the most painful thing Jesus ever experienced was not three nails and a hammer. It wasn't a spear in the side. It wasn't rejection, humiliation, beating, scourging. It wasn't having his beard ripped out, being spat on, having a, a crown with three-inch thorns pressed down through his skull plate into his brain. I believe the greatest pain that Jesus felt was when he could no longer feel the presence of his father. 
The earth went dark because Jesus was taking on Scott Becker's sin and Ken Huff's sin and Cedric Dixon's sin and your sin and your sin. And I, I don't believe you should get theology from songs, but sometimes songs have good theology. And it's not my favorite song, but I love the words to it. it and, and I know it's true. When he was on the cross that day, I was on his mind. How, how, how could I be on his mind 2,000 years before I was even born? Because my sin was placed on his body, and he felt the pain of separation from his father. For the first time in eternity past, we think of eternity as being in the future, but eternity doesn't have a beginning. There's eternity past going back. We say going back billions and billions. What's well, more than that? It's forever back, and it's forever forward. And forever in the past, Jesus and God had never had a, a split moment of disharmony. And in this three hours, people say Jesus spent 30 years in preparation for three years of ministry to accomplish three hours of purpose. Now somebody gets saved and they want to know what department they can run. Now, now somebody becomes a brand new Christian and they're like, I don't take over the world for Jesus. Uh, well, first, let's take over your appetites, your addictions, and, 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 and you know, uh, so, some, some different things. Jesus spent 30 years in preparation for three years of ministry to accomplish these three hours of purpose. In verse 45, it says, the light from the sun was gone. Think about how dark that is. Wasn't blocked out, wasn't an eclipse the light from the sun was gone. And suddenly, the curtain in the sanctuary, the veil in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last breath. This is the story of how the, re the, 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 the perfect spotless lamb of God lived a perfect life, was placed on a cross, and breathed his last breath. But I want you to know the story doesn't end there. Dr. Jerry Vines, who then was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of downtown Jacksonville, got into a lot of hot water nationally. About 15, 20 years ago, he said that Christianity is a better religion than Islam. You think the Muslims like that? When he said Jesus was more powerful than Elijah Muhammad, the Muslims came unglued, and they started demanding that the government of America, you know, incarcerate this man for speaking negative. And I'm going to tell you this. He told the truth. Christianity is not just better than the Islamic religion. It's better than every other religion because every other religion is based on a lie, and Christianity is the only true religion there is. Jesus said, I'm the only way to get to the Father. No one can come any other way but by me. And Christianity is so different than any other religion because if you went and dug up the bones of every religious leader who started a religion, their bones are right where they laid them. Their DNA, no matter how decomposed they are, is right where they laid them. But when they buried Jesus, they came back a couple days later and found his bones are not where you laid them because death couldn't hold him and the grave couldn't keep him. The truth about Christianity is our religion is based on resurrection. 
And in Luke 24, just the very next chapter, we read, okay, so he's just died, and I love the first word in, ver in, in, in verse 1 of a brand new chapter, but. Uh, he just died, but. They put him in a grave, sealed it with a tomb, put guards out in front of it, but. He, he's gone and he's dead, and we've been wondering what's happening next, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. There's a way to prepare a body for burial. They, they came knowing Jesus was dead. They, they want to uh, perfume his body uh, for the proper burial form. And in verse 2, it says, They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now, I tell you this every time, but I, I hope you get it in, in your mind and in your spirit. God didn't roll the stone away so Jesus could get out. God rolled the stone away so his followers could get in. Jesus is not bound by time, space, and eternity. If you, if you read the Bible, you'll see him walking through walls and appearing. You'll, you'll see him doing stuff that proves he's not bound by, by physical space. And, and they found the stone had been rolled away. Verse 3 says, so they went in but didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's at this point that every person has to deal with this question. Where is the body of Jesus Christ? Where is the dead body of Jesus Christ? And if you're a Christian, you believe, well, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven because the Bible says so. The Bible says he rose from the dead. The Bible says that he's the creator of everything. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Nothing can defeat him, and he's victorious over the grave. This is the story of the Christian faith. They did not find the body of the Lord. Verse 4 says, As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. The men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? That must have seemed like an odd question. Because these are the women who loved Jesus more than anybody did. These were the women who were at the cross. These were the women who financed his ministry while he was doing work for three years after he left carpentry. These, these are the women who believed in him, and they knew he was dead because they witnessed it. They said, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? A strange question when, when they're convinced in their mind that he's dead but they go on to explain it in verse 6. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Verse, 24, or verse 8 in chapter 24 says, Then they remembered that he had said this. Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead. Listen, the Bible declares that he showed himself in his resurrected form over a dozen times to people. One time, he showed himself in resurrected form to over 500 people gathered in one place at one time. Now, people wonder, how did Christianity take over the world in 100 years? The, the, even the unsaved rulers of the apostles' day said, these are ignorant and unlearned men, but they've turned the world upside down 
for Jesus. Some people think it was the signs and wonders of Pentecost. Some people think that it was the, the, the anointed preaching uh, of the apostles. Listen, what it was was people were excited about the resurrection. And if you knew somebody that had sure enough died, you watched them die. They came back alive, walked in the door right now and said, uh, Pastor Scott, could I have a word? To t- <laughs> you believe what somebody who beat death tells you about how to beat death. And Jesus is the only person to ever raise himself from the dead. And he told his disciples it was going to happen, but they forgot. I've been telling you for years, it's not some newfangled theology that you need to learn. It's not the new latest trending fashion of spirituality that you need to embrace. You just need to remember the things God's already taught you. And you'll be further toward pleasing Him than you already are. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast and visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church, loving God, loving people.